Our text this morning is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Um, you can find that in your pew Bible uh, page somewhere. I know I typed that in there, but anyway, if you want to follow with me, that'll be great. Otherwise, um, I'll just read. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, uh, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves who is this who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace one of the great honors of my life was when I was invited to the White House with the, to uh, dine with the president along with several other newly elected representatives. And one of the great embarrassments of my life was when the coaster that my water glass sat on uh, stuck to the bottom of the glass and when I lifted it to drink, the coaster fell down on my plate and crashed and made an awful mess. It was terribly embarrassing. Um, before you pick up your jaws off the floor, I should explain that the dinner that I went to was not the White House in Washington, uh, but the White House in Knoxville, Tennessee. The president was not the president of the United States, but of the small Bible college I attended there in Knoxville. And as a newly elected representative of my freshman class to the student council, uh, I had been invited to the president's home, uh, which was known as the White House, for a formal banquet. Uh, you know, having grown up in a family steeped in mountain culture, 
I was totally unfamiliar with all of the etiquette surrounding a formal dining experience. Um, but I'm not alone in this predicament. A few years ago, I listened to an audio version of Hillbilly Elegy uh, by J.D. Vance. It's a feature-length motion picture now. I think you can find it on maybe Netflix or Amazon Prime, one of those. But uh, anyway, it's the uh, story of a young man uh, growing up in a Kentucky mountain culture uh, back in the 80s. And uh, after a topsy-turvy childhood growing up with uh, a heroin addict mother and a gun-toting, foul-mouthed uh, grandmother, uh, J.D. went on to make quite a life for himself after graduating from high school. He joined the Marines, and upon graduating, or uh, upon completing his uh, tour of duty with Marines, he enrolled at Ohio State, where he distinguished himself and uh, was accepted into law school at Yale. And on one occasion, uh, when he was at Yale, he uh, attended a, a fancy dinner uh, where representatives from some of the top law firms in the country had come to recruit people for summer jobs. And so when uh, J.D. Uh, sat down, he uh, noticed that the place setting looked something similar to this. Uh, there's enough glasses and plates and utensils here to fill up a dishwasher. Uh, so he wasn't sure what to do, so he called, excused himself, and uh, called his uh, girlfriend uh, and classmate uh, who had come from an, an upper crust family and asked her what in the world he should do. Uh, so she explained to him in enough detail that he could get through the uh, meal without embarrassing himself terribly. Um, but, you know, I've never had an experience like this where, uh, I mean, even at the White House, it wasn't this formal looking. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there are some things um, about formal dinners or about any kind of dinner. And uh, I guess the way to talk about it is uh, food for the soul. So, you know, there's food for the stomach and there's food for the soul. And uh, there are common denominators uh, that involve both. Both involve culture. Both include warnings. Both produce conversation. And both feature something meaty. So uh, I thought about making an analogy between fast food and fast sermons, but as you know, um, sermons presented here bear no resemblance whatsoever to fast food or short orders. We give you the whole banquet. So enough of that. So let's begin with the cultural context of the dining experience. Several years ago, I took Kara to a fancy restaurant in Chicago. We went in and sat down. The, uh, the maitre d' is that the correct uh, term, um, dressed in a tuxedo and took us to a table and uh, we sat there um, 
with our water glasses and uh, picked up our menus and looked at them. And there were several items on the menu that looked good, uh, very appetizing. But, you know, when I followed uh, the entree to the end, looking for the price, there was no price. So anytime you go into a restaurant, they don't put the prices on the menu. It usually means you can't afford it. Um, so we had to quickly decide, uh, should we stay here and eat, or should we make our house payment this month? You know. <laughs> um, so we quickly got up and disappeared before the uh, waiter returned uh, to take our order, uh, lest we be charged $50 for a glass of water or something. But anyway, uh, if, if you're like me, um, you may or may not have been to a, a real fancy restaurant, but you have probably been to a, a restaurant somewhere uh, around where you go in and you know, the wallpaper is peeling off the walls and the carpet's threadbare, uh, but you're willing to overlook that as long as the food is good. Uh, that's the most in, in, important thing. Um, ne nevertheless, you know, uh, atmosphere unquestionably contributes to the dining experience. It's kind of a cultural thing. There are uh, you know, certain restaurants we feel very comfortable in and some that we would not feel comfortable in at all. And that's all cultural stuff. So uh, before I get to the main course of today's sermon, I want to help you understand uh, the cultural context of the story that we've just read so that we can better understand the message. So I want us to look here uh, you know, uh, all those uh, edits I made to my um, PowerPoint, none of them saved. So this may or may not work out too well today. Now, anyway, I'll leave this picture up here. And uh, verse 36, there we go. Uh, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now, this thing is normal enough, you know. Uh, Pharisee invited the preacher over for dinner. Uh, nothing culturally weird about that. Uh, that happened a lot in, in those days and, and these days too. Uh, but soon after that, the cultural weirdness begins. As we look at the uh, last part of this verse, uh, he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, uh, the picture that was there previously, see if I can click back to it. Uh, you'll notice tables there in kind of a U-shape. This is how they ate back in those days. The opening there was so that the servers could come in uh, with the food. But uh, as you see these guys lying down with their feet sticking out that way and their uh, uh, faces uh, close to what looks like a, a coffee table, uh, th this is how they ate. Um, there, there's a picture of an old guy there up front. I don't know how he managed to get down. And I uh, would be really interested in knowing if he's going to be able to get up or not. I'm not sure I could do that. I think you would probably have to be a teenager to uh, you know, be able to eat like that. But there is strong evidence that Jesus' disciples were all teenagers or maybe, maybe 20 or so. So um, maybe that doesn't seem uh, so odd. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, culture here. And so um, as the people would uh, 
uh, take their place uh, at table, uh, as scripture defines it, uh, they would usually prop their heads up with their left hand and use their uh, two fingers here and their thumb like chopsticks uh, to eat the food that's on the, the table that is there. Uh, that's the, the culture of, of the day. Um, and uh, before dinner was served, uh, there were certain acts of hospitality uh, that were expected to be uh, practiced. Uh, one of those uh, was when you went into your host's home. Uh, the host would greet you with a, a kiss, and the servant uh, would come and wash your feet. Um, you know, in that uh, climate where it's uh, hot and dry, and you walk around in sandals all day, your your feet get dirty. And so it's uh, it's a practical matter as as well as just a, a, a matter of refreshment uh, to to have your feet washed, and uh, the other thing is they would anoint your head with oil uh, again in a dry arid climate. Um, your your skin could get tight and and itch, and uh, it was just a common act of hospitality to uh, anoint your guests' heads with oil. So. Uh, these are the kinds of things that you would expect if you were to be going into uh, someone's home for dinner. But when Jesus showed up at Simon the Pharisee's house, uh, Simon didn't show him any of these courtesies. Uh, there is no kiss of uh, welcoming. Uh, there is uh, no washing of the feet. And there is no anointing of his head with oil. Uh, these were just the, the basic uh, rudimentary things that you would do to uh, show hospitality. Uh, the, the, the kiss was a, a sign of making a guest feel welcome and, and honored in your home. Uh, before we moved here uh, a long time ago, uh, we lived in New York and the first time we went to uh, New York to get acquainted with the, the, the church there, um, th there was culture shock. Uh, you know, I grew up in the South and um, the, the ways of New Yorkers are, are totally different uh, than the ways of people of the southern United States. Uh, it's more like Europe or maybe Middle East or something like that. Uh, but, I mean, they greet you with a kiss. And so, you know, walk out there among uh, several people who have gathered to, to greet us. And uh, you see uh, all these uh, grandmothers, you know, come uh, running, arms outstretched, lips all puckered up, uh, you know, ready to plant one, you know, on my cheek, and uh, you know, I don't know really what to, what to do. How do you handle that? You're supposed to kiss them back. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so it was awkward. After the church service was over, uh, there was a receiving line, and uh, again, there were people coming by, uh, you know, greeting us, uh, getting a kiss, you know, from not only the women, but also the men. Um, it's a different culture, you know, so we're kind of weirded out. And uh, then there was a, a, a woman there who had a, a teenage son, and she was trying to get him to uh, give Kara a, a kiss. I don't think Carol would have been offended if he didn't kiss her. And I certainly wouldn't have been offended if uh, he decided not to kiss my wife on the cheek. But his mother was embarrassed 
really embarrassed and you could tell that, that she was going to make sure that her teenage son was going to give my wife a kiss because if you withhold a kiss it is like saying you are not welcome here we don't want you here and so when Jesus enters Simon the Pharisee's house and there's no kiss there is no washing of the feet they don't practice washing feet in New York by the way uh, and, and uh, there, there was no uh, anointing of your head with, with oil. It was like saying, uh, you're here, but you're not really welcome. I have an ulterior motive in asking you here, which we're going to get to in just a, a little bit. But uh, while we're uh, at it here, let's see if I can get this next verse. Here, here's the next thing that happens. Um, lots of weird cultural stuff. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. All right. So, shocking stuff here, uh, stuff to us that's just culturally weird. Uh, this woman comes in, she uh, washes Jesus' feet with her tears, she dries them with her hair, and then she takes this alabaster flask and uh, removes the top and pours the oil all over Jesus' feet. Now, this is really weird stuff to us. And uh, I mean, it's so weird that we might miss the initial weirdness of the woman coming into Simon's house. How did she get into the house? I mean, did she knock on the door? I mean, if, if she did, then wouldn't you expect the butler or whoever answered the door to say, uh, sorry, you're not an invited guest. Um, how did she get into the house? Well, in those days, uh, houses were open on several sides that uh, allow for the uh, ventilation of, of uh, air. Uh, they didn't have air conditioning, of course, and so uh, it was good to have the, the free flow of, of, of uh, air. And uh, also something that was part of the culture was that anytime uh, a wealthy person had a, a dinner party and had some um, you know, guests over, anyone in the community could come and sit there and watch the people eat and listen in on the conversation. And then after uh, supper was over, uh, the uninvited guests could go and eat the leftovers. So uh, think of it as uh, maybe a, 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 a talk show uh, where there's a live studio audience and uh, you can go in and watch what's going on and whatever hors d'oeuvres they had out there uh, for the, uh, the guests. Uh, you could have some of that too. So. Uh, this is what is uh, going on, and Simon the host is aghast. Uh, not because this woman comes in and creates a scene, which she does, but because Jesus lets her do it, and even approves of it, like it's something normal and uh, even desired. But this is proof, Simon believes, that Jesus cannot be a prophet. A prophet would not let such a sinful person 
get anywhere near him. So we'll talk about this a little more later on. But for now, I want to move to the next analogy uh, between physical dining and spiritual dining. The first one is uh, uh, the culture. Uh, the other is the warning. So what kind of warning? If you've been to a McDonald's, uh, you might see a sign similar to this on a, a window or in a prominent place somewhere. Please no loitering, time limit, 20 minutes while consuming food. And then here's this line. Only food or beverages purchased in McDonald's may be consumed in McDonald's. Well, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't go to McHugh's and get a burger and fries and walk across the street to McDonald's and sit in their dining room. I mean, you might want to. And McDonald's dining room is nicer than McHugh's. They don't really have a dining room, but you might like McHugh's hamburgers better. So, you know, best of both worlds there. Uh, so, you know, management is you know, concerned about that kind of thing happening. Uh, and it, it makes sense that they will have restrictions. So there, there's something similar uh, on a theological level here that uh, I, I think we could file under the, the, the heading of, of warning. And uh, that is, uh, is, is this, uh, don't bring preconceived ideas to the test and assume that that's what it says. Okay, so if you bring a preconceived idea to uh, a, a text uh, saying, well, this is something that I picked up somewhere else, and so you read it into the text, uh, then you really don't understand what the, the text is saying, you misinterpret it. And so uh, there, there are at least two preconceived ideas here uh, that uh, it's kind of easy for us to bring uh, those preconceived ideas with us. Um, and. and uh, the, the first preconceived idea is this, is that many people believe, let me get rid of this, it says no loitering, I'm afraid that some of you might take that literally and uh, you know, get up and walk out, I really hope you'll stay for the whole thing. Uh, but a lot of people have the idea that uh, this, uh, th this incident that is described for us in, in uh, Luke's account of the gospel of Christ is uh, the, the same incident that John talks about in John chapter 12. And uh, that section of scripture, uh, there is a woman uh, named Mary, uh, the same Mary who was the sister of Martha and uh, Lazarus, uh, anointed Jesus' feet with expensive ointment and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. And so... You know, these are weird things, so there's a tendency for us to think, well, this is all the same event, uh, but they're not. Um, they're separated by uh, a, a time frame of uh, two and a half, maybe three years. Uh, the incident we're talking about here was early in Jesus' ministry, and the other occasion where uh, Mary, the uh, sister of Lazarus, um, anoints Jesus' feet, wipes them with her hair, uh, that took place uh, very close to the end of Jesus' um, earthly life. So um, we want to make sure that we don't get things confused. Uh, so that's preconceived idea number one. Uh, the second preconceived idea 
is that the woman who was a sinner was a prostitute. Um, maybe the woman was a prostitute. Uh, she may well have been, but the text doesn't say that she was. Uh, that's something we bring with us and read it into the text, uh, probably because a lot of commentators and a lot of uh, uh, preachers have said that she was, and so we assume uh, that she was. Uh, curiously, uh, commentators often assume that she's a prostitute as if the only sin that a Jewish woman could uh, commit in the first century was a sexual sin. Um, whatever her sin was, Simon obviously thought she was a notorious sinner, a super sinner. I mean, what sin other than prostitution would give this woman uh, this kind of reputation? Well, let's talk about what um, a sinner is for just a moment. Uh, the word sinner does not refer only to someone who behaves badly. It certainly includes bad behavior, but a more accurate definition of a sinner is someone who lives his or her life without reference to God. Someone who lives as though God is not there. So am I saying that bad behavior isn't sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. You can certainly sin by behaving badly, and all of us do. But at its core, sin is saying something like this to God. I don't want you running my life. I don't want you telling me what's right and what's wrong or what's best. I want to run my own life. In other words, I want to do what's right in my own eyes. Sound familiar? went through the book of Judges. That was the, the theme there, but it's a theme that transcends all generations. So whatever this woman's sin was, she made people like Simon the Pharisee feel very good about himself, very secure in his righteousness. A while back, there was an article uh, about why sex offenders hit the news so strikingly. Uh, we focus on them, the article says, because they make the rest of us feel better about ourselves. They make us feel more secure in our own righteousness. So, you know, if we can brand one group of people as evil or as really sinful, uh, we can convince ourselves that we are in a completely different category than those other people. And so when a politician or an athlete or a celebrity or an entertainer or a high-profile preacher or even a low-profile preacher falls into sexual sin, we feel better about ourselves because we look so much more righteous in comparison. Well, Simon the Pharisee felt confident that God would accept him because in comparison to this woman, he was so much more righteous. He, never done, he had never done anything like she had done. All right, let's be honest with ourselves. Do we really believe that our righteousness comes from favorably comparing ourselves to those who have sordid reputations? All right, let's move to the third analogy between... Uh, uh, food for the stomach and 
food for the soul. And that's conversation. You know, un unless you're eating by yourself, uh, you're going to be engaged in conversation with those who are dining with you. I mean, you go into a restaurant, it's, I mean, the place is always buzzing. People are talking. Um, and when you sit down uh, at, at, at home, if, if you have a companion uh, or other family members to eat, there's going to be dinnertime conversation. Unless you're not happy with somebody and it's just silent, that's, that can happen too. Uh, but, but key conversations often take place around the table. And uh, we see several key conversations taking place in the story today. So the, the first key conversation is uh, this one. It's between Simon and himself. Uh, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, okay, so he's having a conversation with himself. Uh, interesting. Here's what he said. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. A true prophet, Simon reasoned, would have known what sort of person this woman is. Jesus didn't know what sort of person this woman was. Therefore, Jesus could not be a prophet. However, the Pharisee did not voice his thoughts verbally. He kept his thoughts to himself. He's speaking to himself. Or at least that's what he believed. <laughs> but uh, notice what Luke tells us in the next key conversation. In verse 40, Jesus answering him. All right, let's stop right there. Who is Simon talking to? His lips aren't moving. He is just thinking something in his mind. And Jesus responds to him audibly. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, let's hear it. Say it, teacher. And so uh, Jesus, well, let me say this first. Uh, don't you find it ironic that Simon assumes that Jesus cannot be a prophet because he didn't realize what sort of woman this person was. And yet it seemed to never dawn on Simon that Jesus' ability to read his mind is exactly the sort of thing that should prove that he is indeed a prophet or more than a prophet. Conversation continues. And next uh, key conversation here is the parable that Jesus spoke to Simon. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Let's make that thousands. 500,000 and 50,000. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, uh, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you judged rightly. Now, 
Jesus is turning the tables on Simon. Simon intended to trap Jesus in his words. It seems to be the ulterior motivation he had in inviting Jesus to his house for, for dinner. And now Jesus has turned the tables on Simon, and Simon is trapped by his own words. Simon clearly understands in principle that the one who is forgiven more will love more. But since he doesn't think he has that much to be forgiven of, he doesn't respond with much love. Now we come to the fourth key conversation in verse 44. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? Uh, let's stop here just for a moment. You know, actually, this is something that both Simon and Jesus were saying to each other. Simon thought that Jesus was the one who could not see her. He th his, his thinking uh, went something like this. Jesus, don't you see this shameful woman here associating so closely to you? How could you let this thing happen? Uh, but Jesus turns the tables to, on Simon saying, you see this woman? Simon, do you see her love, her repentance, her devotion? That's what I see. Even though Jesus is a guest in Simon's home, it is the sinner who extends hospitality. And, uh, you know, Jesus makes uh, that uh, very clear. He said, you gave me no water to wash my feet, Simon, no kiss of welcome. And here she is doing all of this and more. So uh, Simon did not see the woman as she was. He saw her for who she had been, a notorious sinner. Now Simon provides us with a picture of someone working for his salvation. And the woman shows us a picture of someone who is saved by grace. You know, we've been looking at some analogies between uh, you know, food for the, the body and uh, food for the soul. And uh, so far we've looked at several analogies, uh, the cultural context of the meal, uh, the warnings to be heated, heated and uh, the dinner conversation. Um, but there's one final analogy uh, between uh, food for the body and food for the soul uh, that I want to want to make here, and and, and that is, um, there, there's something meaty involved with both. You know, unless you're a vegetarian or a vegan, the main course always features the meat. That's true, no matter where you go. If you go, you know, to a McDonald's or McHugh's, uh, the meat is what you focus on. Some of you who are in my generation may remember a Wendy's commercial where there's this old lady in this, uh, like a 1948 uh, Plymouth or something, and drives up to the drive-in window, and uh, they serve her this hamburger, and she opens the bun and says, "Where's the beef?" You know. Uh, so w in our culture, we we focus on the uh, the meat. So and. Uh, in, in, in the Bible, we, we see a, a, a connection, though, between uh, um, food for, th for the physical and, and food for the, the, the spiritual. 
In uh, John 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, he made an analogy between physical food and spiritual food. He says, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And at the Last Supper, Jesus made the same analogy between his body and uh, the bread and between the blood and the wine. And so it leads me to ask this question. What's the meat of the story? It, it's this. It is the theological substance of the person of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Um, the person of Christ, first of all. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. And uh, the next verse. Uh, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Well, he thinks he's God in the flesh, and he's absolutely right. Uh, that is who he is. But everyone is amazed that Jesus is forgiving sins. Who can do that but God alone? Jesus is the very essence of God in human form. He never sinned, and yet he was treated as though he had committed every sin in the book. On the cross, Jesus absorbed all sin, all moral debt. He paid it all off. He took upon himself the judgment that we deserved and paid the price. And when he did that, he anticipated everything that we would ever do that would need to be forgiven. This is good news. Do you realize that there is nothing, there is no sin that you have committed or might commit in the future that Jesus has not already dealt with? He's already paid for it. The power of his blood is that magnificent. So there is the the, the, the meat, uh, the, the person of Christ, but there, there's also the, the, the meat, the, the, the theological substance of the gospel of Christ. It's vitally important that we understand what Jesus is saying to this woman. He's not saying that he is forgiving her as a result of her lavish demonstration of love uh, for him. He is not re rewarding her with forgiveness because she took the initiative to show love for him. We love Christ because he first loved us. That's scripture. We don't take the initiation or the initiative in our relationship with Christ. He always takes the initiative. So Jesus doesn't meet us halfway. It's not like he says, okay, if, if you will do this, then I will do that. Uh, you make the first move, and uh, then I'll meet you halfway. He, he doesn't do that. He cancels the debt, all of it. And the woman is grateful. She is extremely grateful. You know, those who misunderstand the gospel see Christianity as having to do a long list of stuff that you don't want to do. And at the same time, you are forbidden to do uh, another list of things that you would like to do. The gospel is nothing like that. The gospel is the good news that Christ paid our debt 
our debt of sin, all of it. And in return, we show our love for him. This traffic of faith. In conclusion, there are a number of ways that we could read ourselves into this story as individuals. Now, you may see yourself as a good person who doesn't have much need for the forgiveness of sins from Jesus. Uh, if so, then please listen to what Jesus is saying here. The one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Or maybe uh, you have convinced yourself that your own sins are too many or too great to forgive. If so, then hear the reminder or this reminder of God's amazing grace and mercy. For all of us whose hearts are overflowing with gratitude for God's grace, hear this invitation to give back to God lavishly extravagantly in return. Last thing I want to say is from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we express to you gratitude for the person and the message of Christ. God in the flesh came to this earth willingly, laid down his life, shed his blood to pay the price of our sins. We ask that you make us aware of the lavishness of the grace that you freely gave to us. And we ask that we in turn, as an act of worship, may lavish you with gratitude and with our service to you. Through Christ our Lord, we pray.